Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, I've got to say I was pretty blown away by Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Honestly, it, it might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. And I'll start it off with that. I know you texted me when you got out of the theater saying <laughs> best Marvel movie ever, ever. And so now you're saying potentially one of the best movies ever. So I wonder, if, does that mean it's gotten better over time? Let's say it's, it's one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. And I say that from the standpoint of you don't have to care about superheroes. I think Spider-Man for the most part is like pretty beloved. Yeah. But it is beautiful. Like the art is beautiful. And it's all sorts of different art because, of course, you're going across the Spider-Verse or you're seeing these different other universes. So they're able to, like, really diversify the eye around the art that they're showing. So visually, it's absolutely stimulating. Music is incredible. The acting, the voice acting is amazing. And you have, like, Haley Steinfeld, Shamik Moore, Jason Schwartzman, I mean, uh, Oscar Isaac in this movie. And the plot is actually pretty cool. And... It's very funny. And I, I would say that all in all together, I kept looking at my buddy and we we're like, man, this is really, really, really good. We just kept saying that to each other. And it, it if you like the first one, you'll love this, Which I one. Did. this one. Yeah, this one blows the first one. Like it just it just 10x's it. And I think overall, like I know that the animated ones are in its own thing. And, I, and I'll, I'll give this to Sony, man. I mean, they're on a little bit of a run right now, and and I appreciate what they're doing here. And I'm actually happy that it also performed well. As I was, you know, it's targeting a 120 million dollar opening weekend, third best opening for a Spider-Man Which movie. Which is great. Yeah, so third best for a Spider-Man movie, and that includes like obviously you have No Way Home, you have Spider-Man Two. That includes the live actions, right? Which are just you know No Way Home. Yeah, and the sixth best opening of an animated movie. So. I was pretty blown away. I might go see it again tonight because I, I need to get back into my fields and I want to go on a ride again. So highly, highly recommend this movie. Spider-Man is Marvel's most popular, most well-known character, you know, globally recognizable primary brand and the license agreement between Sony and Marvel about Spider-Man. And so this is collaborative. As you'll see, you know, it's a Marvel character, but Sony has the theatrical rights and you know, this animated series of movies is, it's not necessarily, I don't want to use the word constrained, but it's, they're not limited to Kevin Feige's MCU. Yeah. And yeah. they don't have to like move other movies forward and they don't have to necessarily be tied into every other movie. No. And because of that, in addition to the freedom that animation gives you as a medium, as opposed to live action, narratively, every film has to be a part of a larger whole kind of makes the MCU a little bit less fun, maybe? Yeah. Or free, I, at least. I think I think that's a really good observation. I think that, you know, we're having a lot of fun here with the constraints of, it's just Spider-Man. And there's a bunch of different Spider-Verses and Spider- Everyone's a Spider-Man. So 
everyone's a Spider-Man. There's like, and, and like the way they do it is so incredible. And it's like, yeah, like they don't have to care about all these other storylines. This is the storyline that they're going with. I agreed. It makes for a very good narrative. I mean, they just did such a good job. And you got to give it handed to the direction and also the, the voice acting. The voice acting is absolutely incredible. Those are the Lego movie guys, right? Is it the Lego movie guys? Is the, it's like a I team of so. three directors. Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, Lego movie directors, did um, Into the Spider-Verse. And they're going to do the sequel, which is coming out next year. And Yes. So that's the creative side. From the business perspective, it's tracking to do $120 million opening weekend domestic, which is huge. And it cost $100 million, which I know it's animation, but it seems like a lot, but it's a fraction of what these other live-action movies cost. And it's about what Batgirl costs, if for anyone that's you know, <laughs> tracking them. I guess Batgirl was $90 million. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad. You know, it's like people should see, like, fun, carefree movies. And I say carefree in the sense it's not necessarily going to have ripple effects throughout the rest of the MCU, so everything's got to be, like, in its own place. Yeah. And I, I like that. And and I like the first one. So I'm sure this this is going to be, like you said, much better. Would you put it at, above Endgame? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. That's high yes. praise. I think that like the way it, I just, I, like without giving anything away, I can just say that it was, it's a long movie. It's two hours and 16 minutes for an animated movie. And it is just an absolute ride. Like you don't want it to end. Wow. And yeah, I would say it's a really, really great movie. Visually, it's stunning. It's just a really pretty, beautiful cinema. I mean, the animation is just on another level. You know, this team took risks and, and like immediately from the beginning, you notice that the music, there's something about the music. Like they just, they just hit really hard. So all, all in all, overall package, beautifully done, respected them. More animated movies for me from nostalgia characters like spider-man highly recommend you see it we can uh we can move on from that because i could keep singing its praises yeah well i'm looking forward to um transformers rise of the beast next week i don't think it'll be i mean that's a it's a lot to live up to we'll see i um but you know unicron makes an appearance looks decent so let's throw it back to a topic we discussed way way back in episode 10 just a recap brad pitt and angelina jolie met on the set of mr and mrs smith they bought a vineyard in the south of France in 2008. And they were married there in 2014. And when they bought it, it's like a joint venture. I don't know exactly what the paperwork says. I think it's 50-50, but it's, I think the paperwork's a little bit unclear. And then they have this very sad, acrimonious divorce. Angelina Jolie claims that Brad Pitt is like an alcoholic and abusive, and there was right. an incident on a private on plane. A plane. Yeah. I don't think Brad Pitt has denied any of this, but he's moving on and while they've owned the vineyard, it was Brad's pride and joy, right? He put yeah. a lot of time, resources, investment into it, making it more profitable. So in addition to it being a place he wanted to spend a lot of time, he actually made it into a successful business. And so they had this understanding, whether it's written or, or not, I think is unclear, that if Angelina ever wanted to get out, she would have to offer it to him or get his approval over a sale. And we talked about a lawsuit that was filed for breach of contract last year because she sold it to a part owner of the Stoli Empire. And so she sold her interest. And then Brad Pitt thought it was a breach of contract and also kind of a sabotage move because then the guy's a you know, it's a beverage mogul and he was a spirit mogul and he was going to use Miraval's confidential information and strategies to make them irrelevant and apply them to his other businesses. At least that's the allegation. 
And then there was a filing this past week where he said that the sale was vindictive and he got a favorable custody ruling. And he's alleging that Angelina Jolie, in response to that unrelated legal dispute, right, the divorce is separate from this sale. Well, when he got the favorable custody ruling, he says that she lashed out and um, sold the sold her interest without his consent. She responded saying that she offered it to him for $54.5 million and that he refused to buy it without a, an NDA clause or without a, a confidentiality clause that would have silenced her regarding the uh, domestic abuse. So she said that, well, you know, I did offer it to you and you made it this untenable condition, which would have been requiring me to be silent about a bunch of things, including our abuse, and I didn't want to do that, so I took it to someone else. So that's her position. We'll see. I'm just kind of updating you, and it's a really sad thing anytime there's this bitter, any divorce, and certainly a bitter divorce involving custody and millions of dollars in assets. It's just a shame. But, you know, he's saying breach of contract. He wants to undo the sale and get his legal fees back. I mean, this is one of those things where hindsight's twenty twenty. You always want to paper this stuff. If you have something like, a joint venture or a partnership or an operating agreement, there should be specific rules about who can divest and what is required to be offered to the controlling shareholder and what approval processes and valuations. There's all sorts of things that can go into this to be really clear about how these things are unwound, but I don't know if any of that happened here. It is just an unfortunate. Divorces get messy, the allegations, all that. You know, and again, to your point, what a, a really, really big asset that seems important to one party over the other. Yeah, you know, and in one like matters of the heart, you're not thinking, you know, you're like swept up after filming Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You're like, hey, let's buy a vineyard. You know, we both like right, France. And right. then, sure, they get it. And then you're not going to send her some, you know, 100-page joint venture agreement. Yeah, exactly. Because that's just, it's like not in the spirit of their love, right? And now you're wishing you'd had, but it's not, I don't know. It's, well, it becomes like a $100 million asset. Um, yeah, things right. get complicated. Hindsight's twenty twenty, But yeah, anyway, um, we'll see how that plays out. We'll update you when there's a result. Let's take a quick break and come back with State of Television. Okay, so Paul, look, the TV, obviously, where is it going? where the show is going. It's all going to streaming. It's There's just so much content out there. And I think especially recently, what we've seen is some of the most beloved shows. And and I'll, I'll preface that with these are shows that are on, you know, an HBO or an Apple TV. And it's, yes, there's millions of people watching, but a lot of times like Yellowstone has way more viewership than some of the shows I'm going to mention. But I think that shows like Ted Lasso, Barry, Succession, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, these were big, big shows in the sense of they're part of culture. Everyone's talking about them and they've all ended. Succession has ended. I think that was a big one for HBO. I genuinely, I thought it was a pretty good ending. Ted Lasso just ended as well. Season three. I will say this. I, I started out not liking season three. I completely was like, this is just, I don't even know what the show's about anymore. I thought it was about like soccer. Can we get back to the soccer or the football? And uh, I will say this, that finale had me in a little tears, a little emotional. I think it's one of the best series finales in a, in a long time. I don't watch Barry. I, I used to watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but they've all come to an end. And, and, and I think it's like, what does the future of TV look like now in the sense of like, what will people be watching? And there's a lot of great stuff out there. And I'll, and I'll share a few of what I'm watching now. Yeah, you know, these are these are big shows for some of these platforms. Amazon, Apple, 
HBO. They got to get some new stuff out now. We talk about it a lot, but so streaming is a completely different business model than the dominant television model that we had from the 90s to the mid-2010s. And then streaming emerged and it became the dominant content spend. So there's two different business models at play. When you say something like Yellowstone has way more viewers, it's because it's really started as a linear show and it wasn't right, right. it wasn't made for streaming. And you know, when you're a cable show, you have a potential audience of 80 to 100 million households that all have cable or broadcast. Streaming, yeah, Netflix has 220 million global subscribers, but most products do not have the same reach of a traditional cable network, at least not right now. Right. And I mean, there's another angle to this, which is like creatively what happens. Although we've had great shows, we've had areas of great shows, and I'm sure we'll continue to have great shows, right? With Sopranos ended, that was an you know, an era when Thrones ended, that was an era when The Wire. I mean, there's a handful of great shows and HBO is going to keep making shows. Like Succession is now on that list and the list will continue to grow. But I think there are some questions about the pace and for every great show that makes that list, there's a lot that don't, even though they may be expensive. And I think that's the, the hard part is like when we were in exuberant streaming days, everything was getting greenlit. Everything was super expensive. There was bidding wars between these tech giants and these other content studios to make more content, to grow for subscribers. And they were thinking, well, you know, eventually this will be as profitable as linear TV. The margins will be there, but right now we're not there, but we still got to spend to grow. And then we'll get like step one, spend, step two, make show, step three, question mark, step four, profit. And, you know, that question mark step is just taking longer and longer. And now people are wondering, well, is streaming really sustainable? Because if everyone's announcing we're losing like a billion this year, a billion a quarter or whatever. So there's that. And then are there going to be fewer shows? And then a third layer on this is, you know, the WGA strike in which could potentially it's it's going on a month now. Right. No signs of it ending. And then if it goes to the end of June, then the SAG agreements are also up. And it's like, well, then is Hollywood on you know, a break and how long would that break go and how long could it drag on? And at, at some point, there's going to be real consequences for not only the talent and the industries that are ancillary to Hollywood and production, but also the studios. I mean, people aren't going to just pay for reruns. Yeah, man. I mean, it's one of those things when, when a few shows end and you're just now everyone's just like, well, what do I watch now? And there is enough stuff to watch. Like there's enough stuff between Hulu and Amazon and, you know, Paramount and Apple, like there is enough stuff to watch for now. But to your point, like things take a long time to like get going and made. And obviously we have seasons of shows that we're waiting on, like The Last of Us and Stranger Things. And these are all affected. If you can't write, the shows get delayed. Writing is critical to to television probably more than any other of the three, I would say. And it's, it's interesting. Last week, the Netflix shareholders rejected the executive compensation plan. So Netflix proposed paying its top executives $166 million, which would have been $40 million to Ted Sarandos, $34 million to uh, Peters, the co-CEO. Yeah. The CFO would have gotten $14 million and the GC was going to get $11 million. So the shareholders rejected Ooh. it. It's not a binding vote, so Netflix can still do it, but... It's just a sign that these pay packages, especially in the time of this strike. It's tough. It's tough, right? It's like, well, the writers are asking for something like 70 million from Netflix, increased compensation in the New Deal. And are the studio heads, the handful of executives that run Netflix, are they worth more than however many writers work on Netflix shows? 
That's a tough question. You know, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm empathetic with talent on that particular thing. But Ted Sarandos has had a really good track record at Netflix and they make effective decisions. Right. One is running the company and looking at how do we make profit? How do we do growth? How do we keep our costs down? And then the other thing on the writer side is like, those are the costs. We're trying to keep those costs down. And rightfully that the writers are like, well, our stuff is the reason why people are signing up for your platforms. So pay us more. And it's, it's a very valid ask. You just have to come to the right balance there. And I think that in this case, as we've discussed, like, Writers are very important to make sure that there's more shows for these people to get us to subscribe to these platforms. And that's what it comes down to. And I think that we've seen that with like the success of all these other shows and like some of the shows I'll just mention right now that are now getting, I think, a bit more attention because we're running out of stuff to watch in terms of like the successions and the Ted Lasso's. You have Silo on Apple TV. That's really, really interesting. I started watching that pretty cool show. Black Mirror, new seasons coming out. Drops of God, which is a really cool show about wine, really. And on Apple, very great. You got Platonic, which is Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen, which I'm probably going to check out soon. And then there's a few other shows like I I'm starting to notice now, now that I've freed up, I'm going to check them out. Right. And I'm just excited. I, I want more. And, you know, let's see. Let's see if we get more great stuff. Now, the unspoken theme of the show is that you watch a lot more content than I do. Yeah. I'm often sort of behind catching up on stuff. And so I just started I just started Suits. It's a really good show. I don't know if any, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you saw that nine seasons. It's pretty no, good. No, I hear it's I hear it's awesome though. I mean it'll and catch, that's it'll get more, that's for Meghan Markle. Yeah, they they ended it because she became <laughs> The Duchess, so... Yeah, like one of the most famous people in the world. Right. They're like, uh, it's kind of hard to shoot this show when you're royalty. <laughs> so have you heard of Jury Duty? Yeah, so that was on my list that I was... I forgot to mention. I've heard of it, but I, I'm, I hear it's a good show. So it's like Truman Show in real life. So it's based on, like, the lead thinks he's actually on a jury and <laughs> okay. doesn't realize that everyone else is an actor. Oh, okay, okay. And it's like pretty wild. I and like the premise. Already. That's on freeview, so I think it's free to. And pe people are talking about the show. I've I've seen a few people mention it on TikTok when I go through like what what are the top shows that people are watching right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty nuts. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe I'll throw it into the rotation. Like I said, we can have one to two shows in rotation at a time. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. But I'll check it out, Paul. Let's take a break and let's get back and let's talk about. The potential of Queen's uh, catalog sale. So, Mesh, in episode 204, we talked about Justin Bieber sold his catalog for $200 million. Yeah. And that was a big number, but Queen's catalog, the rumors are it's going to go for a billion or potentially yeah. more than a billion. Now, granted, it's early in the process. And so there's some industry observers think, well, is that just a number that's being thrown out there as a stalking horse number? My understanding is that there are a couple bidders. Universal is the lead right. potential acquirer, but it's a space that is filled with PE bidders, hypnosis we've talked about. And so we just don't know if Universal, obviously they have the infrastructure, they can monetize music copyrights as well as anyone. I don't think it's a done deal yet. I think it's still in the diligence phase and discussions. This was one where 
when you look at the catalog and you're like a billion dollars, it to me, it, I don't like when you look at everyone else's catalog, there's just something about Queen's catalog that you're like, yes, this is probably worth a billion or more because it's not only just hits, it's the ability for, to use those in the way people have used those hits. I mean, you have like, they use it in sports, they use it in movies, it's being used on TikTok. Like, they just had that movie come out. And like, if we, I'll go through the list of songs just so people can like be like, oh, yeah, well, maybe it is worth a billion. You have Bohemian Rhapsody, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, Another One Bites the Dust, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Somebody to Love, Under Pressure, Killer Queen, Don't Stop Me Now, I Want to Be Free, You're My Best Friend. And those are just the ones, you know, I bet there's more. I know. <laughs> There's more. You know that's insane. It's insane have, when you look at that. Fifteen catalog. studio albums, seventy-three singles. They sold three hundred million records. And jeez, yeah, man. As of today, so the, they were founded in nineteen seventy. For you know anyone that doesn't know, Freddie Mercury passed away in nineteen ninety-one. They had a ridiculous, prolific two decades at the top, and now as of twenty twenty-three, they still get roughly forty-eight million monthly listeners on Spotify. So. Think about like staying power, right? It's a band that came out in the 70s. Yeah. Their music is still in the top 50 in terms of global streams. And music is a very fickle business. Right? I know there's pop music and there are timeless acts, but a lot of it is here today, gone tomorrow in terms of music. So to have that kind of staying power, I think is really rare. Another factor at play here, just from a business perspective, and I don't know, maybe this is just creating more of a market, is there have been so many catalog sales we've talked about, so we're in the yeah. golden era of yeah. catalog sales. We were talking about TV. It's like, well, streaming is, everyone's competing away profits, and all these services are basically, except for a handful, are, are bleeding cash. And streaming, well, music, I should say, uh, is in a different phase. In the 2000s, early 2000s, when everyone was illegally downloading and sharing music, the music industry revenue had fallen dramatically. And um, artists were really nervous and they thought they were gonna have to rely exclusively on touring as record sales basically became a fraction of what they used to be. But then streaming came around in the 2010s and now streaming is incredibly lucrative. And so yeah. people are getting paid from subscription and ad-supported consumption of their work. And that has really helped all artists, but in particularly those at the top of the game, right? Popular artists. And when you talk about Queen, they're coming at the, I don't want to say tail end, but a lot of the big catalogs have been sold. Of like yeah. the artists that were really popular in the 70s, 80s, you know, the major global hits have already sold their catalogs. So Queen right. is one of like the trophy properties that's still out there. And that's probably helping this billion dollar valuation. I was doing some research. Apparently, they report between 40 and 50 or 60 million in streaming royalties per year. The When wow. they did the, the Bohemian Rhapsody biopic, it was like 73 million in streaming royalties. Yeah. That was a great so, move from like a marketing standpoint for their catalog. It was a good movie, but then also it yes. just like gave everything a fourth yeah. or fifth wind, whatever it was. Yeah. Because I think Bohemian Rhapsody has been, it's been charted in the 70s, 90s and then yes. in the 2010s. Yes. Well, 90s right? it was it's in like, Wayne's World. Like if you remember Wayne's yeah. World, it was like it was in the movie. And it, again, it just goes to show their ability to have these songs that are just constantly in stuff that we can relate to. Well, and it's like they resonate with different generations, right? Because yes. the people that were like blasting it in 1975 presumably aren't listening to it on Spotify now. I mean, maybe they are, but it's got to, right. it's also appealing to new generations of people and fans through commercials and film and other 
it's just pop culture now. Yeah, and like you're my best friend. I I see it's like people use it as sound on like TikToks all the time. You see it all the time, and it's interesting how people are using this. And this is a really interesting deal. In addition to the popularity and the demand for it, it's an interesting deal because all four band members, in in the true yeah. sense, like they split everything equally. Equally. And so initially, pre 1982, different members of the band would write songs and would basically right. like have the composition. And then in 1982, they're just like, hey, we're going to give everyone one quarter, regardless of who did of what who writes on a particular yeah. writing the song. And so Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon and Freddie Mercury's estate each own 25% of Queen Productions Limited. And they have their catalog. They're selling, apparently, they're publishing and their master recording rights, everything that, that they control. And they're getting to this billion-dollar valuation. There's one nuance in that Disney's Hollywood record label yes. has the North American recorded music right. rights. I guess they own the, the recorded music catalog due to a deal that they signed in 1991 where they only paid $10 million, which is like, wow. I mean, and that was the advance. But very ahead of its time with that deal. And I think at the time it was actually widely criticized as an overpayment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it, it, like you were saying earlier, people have been selling their their catalogs left and right. And, you know, like Bruce Springsteen sold his publishing and his masters to Sony for reported 600 million. We talked about Bob Dylan sold his publishing to Universal for 400 million. There's rumors about Michael Jackson's estate selling half the catalog to Sony from like 800 to 900 million. It's like the number billion is not, doesn't sound insane to me for like a queen catalog. It doesn't, but it does sound like, I mean, I'm not a, a finance guy necessarily, but like if the, let's say the revenue was 50 million a year, isn't that, so that's 20 multiple? Yeah, it sounds a little bit, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like, are you paying just an insane multiple on this? But then I would, I would argue that Queen's catalog would be more valuable than Michael Jackson's catalog. I just think there's just more mm. songs that we hear on an everyday basis from Queen versus Michael Jackson, you know? I, that's just what I would argue. And if Bruce Springsteen can get 600 mil, yes, the, you know, the, the boss has got hits, 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 hits. And I think it's, it's, it's a similar, like people still love listening to Bruce Springsteen. They use it like on an everyday basis. And I think Queen is up there too, but like, you're not hearing Michael Jackson stuff like always being used out there. It's just an observation. I don't know how you actually like quantify that. No. But. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think it's not necessarily fungible in the sense that you can't replace. If you want to hear we are the champions, like there's no other song that you could <laughs> yeah. swap out for that. <laughs> yeah. Variety had this really cool, like the biggest recent back catalogs and it was just a list of people. And I didn't, I actually didn't even know that, Dr. Dre had sold his artists and writer royalties apparently to Universal Music and Shamrock Holdings for like 200 million. Um, and then so on the on the other end, you got like Huey Lewis and the News, who last year sold uh, you know 100 percent of their uh, of their rights for 20 million. And then you have like a Phil Collins and the Genesis last year sold 100 percent of publishing this rights big. for 300 million. Yeah, it was 300 million. Yeah, and so the numbers are kind of all over the place. Cause like, if you think about Phil Collins, like that's just the publishing royalties for 300 million. I mean, he may, I don't know if he, if he kept his masters or maybe he didn't own his masters. I think a lot of times artists generally don't, but when you're a queen and you know, you've had a career spanning decades and decades and decades, you can negotiate better terms and maybe control ownership in ways that, you know, up and coming artists can't. And the companies that are generally bidding for these catalogs are, 
you know, major labels who have been flush with cash in the heyday of streaming. And then there's a lot of private equity back acquisition funds. And we talked about Armin starting one and hypnosis. Uh, and so part of it is like, once they raise the money, they kind of have to do deals. So yeah. maybe it's a question, well, if there isn't a catalog that's going to come to the market, re- I mean, they're very sophisticated. They're very sort of like good with numbers and valuation. There must be a science to it. Yeah. I mean, some of it is like, hey, you know, we, we raise the funds. We got to do deals. And I, and I would say good for Queen and good good for the, the bandmates and cool that they all have equal share and and for Freddie Mercury's estate. Hell yeah, get that billion dollars. And we'll see who else, you know, if you're an artist now, like you're thinking, okay, like 10, 20 years from now, do I just need to, I just need the hits, man. I just need hits that people still care about. It's nice that they, as a band, were able to treat everyone equally. Cause I know like a lot of bands struggle with that. And then like ego gets involved and some someone wants a bigger piece of the pie than someone else. Well. Good breakdown, Paul. That's our show for this week. And uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow Better Call Paul, the podcast, Instagram, TikTok. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani. Like, comment, subscribe. Leave us a review if you like the show. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.